0: Welcome to the Den of Lions. Hi there, thanks for coming back by. You, whoever you are, it's good to to see you. (laughs) All right, story time. Here it is, the beginning of my second trip So, if you haven't heard the other Storytime episodes, um, it's not necessary, but this has been led up to by the other previous ones, just in terms of context. So, I use this platform called Workaway. You can find it on workaway.info. And it's a platform where you basically elect yourself to work with somebody else, a family, a single person, a couple, whatever... On really whatever project they've got going on. I've done 16 of these overall. First on my eight trip and eight on this second trip here. And so I ended up going all the way to Orlando, Florida, as far south as I went. It wasn't my last workway I did, but that is as far south as I went in Florida. I spent about a month and a half in Louisiana and then the other two and a half months in Florida. So today I'm just going to kind of talk, and whenever I feel like the episode's done, then I'll finish it. (laughs) But I've got eight points here, and I just wanted to let you know the situation. You know, give you an idea of what was going on, and what this is even all about, in case you're hearing this one for the first time. I really wanted to go to Florida, and I want to do it again. Florida is gigantic, and Florida is very pretty, Parts of Florida are super interesting, and I feel like I overlooked a lot of it just because there's so much space, and I wanted to get south. Hopefully sometime in the future, I'll be able to go to the Keys on a road trip doing that. I don't know if I'll do Workway um, to the same extent that I've done on my other trips, but it's a great platform, so why not take advantage of it? Anyways, I started in Louisiana, and the first place I went was Appaloosis. Apelousas, or Sunset, which is maybe 30 minutes north of Lafayette. So I drove six hours down from Texas, well I went across first, across and then down to Lafayette. And my experience of Louisiana before then had only been one instance prior when I went to PCB for spring break one year. And we just kind of cruised through. I didn't even really take notice of much and we certainly didn't stop and hang around. My time in Louisiana before all this really amounted to maybe, I don't know, eight hours worth of just driving through it and through it again to get back home. So knowing that I wanted to get to Florida and I had to go through a couple states, Alabama and Mississippi being the other two, I wanted to spend some time in those Areas or that area, the south, you know, right on the gulf, and just acclimate, see what's going on. Why do people live here? What's worthwhile? And what should I look out for if I were to come back? All these sorts of things. I also thought it was somewhat romantic. Like, there is, of course, the southern charm that you've probably heard of, But I thought Louisiana had a certain, I don't know, like home-cooked feel to it. (laughs) And I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but I just wanted to see what the fuck was going on in Louisiana. So I set up three destinations there. The other five were in Florida. And I set it up based on geography. So I was really just kind of helping myself out. I wanted to give myself the opportunity to stop in places that were close to big cities and were also along the path to where I was going. So it's like I had to pass these people's places anyways. It wasn't even far off from the road I would have taken otherwise had I just gone straight through. And so this whole trip was really planned that way. A large part of it was based off of how convenient all the spots were for my ultimate route and it really worked out in my favor I liked that I did that I think I got exposed to the things I wanted to get exposed to and you know had I seen something that looked really really appetizing then I certainly would have gone out of my way but from my first trip I learned that sticking to my path instead of deviating and just going all over the place for everything that I thought looked cool just kind of going with the plan that I had and um, you know not accommodating as much to go outside of it ended up making the whole thing a lot smoother and it was just way more straightforward. Anyways back to where I started which was in Sunset or Opelousas, Louisiana and this was the first time I had been in a work away in like two years. So I felt like, yeah, I had an idea of what to expect, but there's also this like, I don't know, maybe excitement that came along with it. And I felt that every time I went to a new place for both trips, all 16 of them. But there is a unique feeling that comes with setting off to the first place for me, at least. The first destination on the whole trip felt like I was opening the door to the whole trip. So it had this unique feeling. On top of being exciting and the unknown and all this, it's like, oh, wow, I'm I'm really beginning this entire journey. Knowing that it was multi-months just ahead of me. And here was the first stop. And, um... Yeah, it was awesome. I stayed with this guy who I was unaware of his background and his wife's background. And I think they kind of keep it that way across the board. Most of my hosts tend to keep a lot of their own life kind of on the down low. And then when you show up, they're like, here's all the details. (laughs) Like, here's what it's really about. But um, he and his wife had lived in Los Angeles and they were teachers and the other one was I think an art teacher of some sort but um, the guy was like in some pretty high position at a school I want to say it was a private school and so he was doing a lot there and he was also involved in the arts and that was a big focus of his what he was trying to do a whole dream of his place that he had was to create this artistic educational center on his land and they did have events they had people that would come out and they would do teachings of music or just like exhibitions and it's a really unique spot that they had I can't explain it obviously it wouldn't allow me to paint you a picture even close to what it was like but imagine an old farmhouse looking deal Um, I can't remember the term but the plantation house although it wasn't historically it was not at all this way the architecture was a mimicry of the old plantation homes and that's where they stayed. I stayed on the side of their land which was within sight but um, it was this old trailer that had been used to hold barrels of oil and they renovated it and turned it into this big kind of event center, but also a living situation. They had two rooms that they would rent out for Airbnbs. And then I think like once a month, maybe once every two or three months, they would have these Jazz, Zydeco, uh, just Cajun events in their spot. And then behind all of that, those two buildings, They had this U-shaped, kind of schoolhouse-looking thing, and we worked on that a bunch. He was trying to renovate it to make it an event center for weddings or anything, really, but the weddings was the focus. That's where the money is. And um, yeah, he was just doing the wiring, the plumbing, and I would occasionally help him. What I found myself doing, thankfully, was what I wanted to do, which was mess with the details to organize and to clean he had a woodshed that was not completely wacky but it was pretty torn apart and he had tons of pieces of wood that were just all over the place and it was completely disorganized and you know one of my gifts is when caffeine is in my system especially i am totally willing and able to organize and so that's what i did I just like really got into coffee zone (laughs) every morning. It was so exciting to get that coffee and then go organize for like five hours. And I would just put pieces of wood where they needed to be. I created a whole system on my own and I had to sort through everything and recategorize and clean up. And it was very enjoyable. (laughs) Just, um, what's the the term not detailing or listing but just notating like this is this this is this, this is where the big wood is you know like making it clear when you look at it you can see and read that uh, that's what's going on i ate pretty close to the land at this place they had a lot of fruit trees i can't remember the name of the fruit but it's basically an orange and anybody from Louisiana knows what it is. Uh, some, no, I can't remember. I think he starts with the nest, anyways. <laughs> I would just kind of eat the fruit that was laying around, and I ate a lot of rice. I ate close to the culture for sure. Mm. Really, a big thing that stuck out was I was listening to Mac DeMarco a bunch. And so something I like to do, which I realized about halfway through my first trip, was listen to an album while I was in a certain place. The realization was that album then becomes a storage of the memory of sorts. So when I would listen to the album in the future, I could recall so much of my experience from that time in that place previously. and. Um, I didn't choose beforehand. I was just listening to music, and when I happened to shuffle on to a DeMarco song, I thought, "Hey, this is pretty sweet. I like the way it fits with everything." So I listened to uh, this old dog. I think that's the album, just over and over and over, while I worked at this guy's pl- Excuse me, <laughs> this place. And so now I have associated that whole period of time with that album. And it's really special because I have access to it in a way that I don't feel like I have access to with other memories. It's like it's seasoned with certain feelings and emotions, but it was also packaged nice and neat, and it's just one whole chunk. So that was that. It was a good time. Um, I thought I was getting haunted at one point. uh it was kind of crazy there was just like raccoons and i think a mouse at one point just making noise and being at somebody else's land is kind of spooky when you're on your own there's so much of the unknown i went to louisiana right i'm away from home and then i'm also just in some other guy's house sort of and like living there and just like okay (laughs) i hope everything's good you know and uh, yeah everything was good obviously so I said thank you to them moved on and went to the second place which was in essentially Lafayette but in a small town called Scott which is like the northwest corner of Lafayette and it was rough living man it was like as close to off the grid as you could get but it had pretty much all the amenities that you would get on the grid because he was on the grid but it was very off the grid style living so this guy had a FEMA shelter which was used to house people after natural events and this one was from uh, Katrina it was left over And when people get displaced because of these disasters, they're put into these FEMA shelters, which are like makeshift homes. And it's really two rooms. You walk in and there's like a big living area. And then there's this very short hallway, which leads to a small room. And there's another room for a bathroom. But um, yeah, it's just like a rectangle essentially. And you're not supposed to make that your place of residence. Technically, he didn't live there. He had residence elsewhere, but he did live in the FEMA shelter on that land. Um, he spent so much time there that it pretty much was where he lived. But as far as the details and everything goes, he didn't live there. <laughs> you know, all his mail went to a different area, and on paper, he lived somewhere else. So that was interesting because I had been looking into housing and you know living on my own land and being off the grid housing solutions like all these different things and it made me realize that there are workarounds there are loopholes and it is possible to be in a unique situation that normally isn't allowed especially if you are out of sight and out of mind so driving by you saw none of this. Which was interesting because he wasn't out in the country he was like across the bridge basically from the city like he was on the other side of the tracks just around a couple corners and as you're going down this road there was this little offshoot which went on kind of far and he had trees flanking both sides of the driveway so you could only look so far back and then it was just kind of like green but once you actually went down there you could see that Hey, somebody's living here. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just like, it was very down to earth, I'll say. But it was, um, it was rough because there were some situations where I felt like I wasn't too happy with the accommodations. But then on the other hand, I was very satisfied with my treatment. And um, even more so with the work we were doing. The work was satisfactory, it was fulfilling, I felt like I was learning a bunch, my host made a point to teach me a lot, um, but it was also easy, you know, considerably, both in difficulty and then in the time spent doing it. The guy had his own life, he was 10 years older than me and he was dealing with his own relationship with who is his now wife, um... So he had other things going on. You know, his focus was not just on the land. And so it was really nice to have that ability to tap out and go explore, go do things I wanted to do, to study, to enjoy my time there. Um, We lived, well, I lived in a bus. There was an old renovated bus that had been parked on the property And it was mostly gutted and then refurbished. But it was more of like a motel than a hotel remodeling. It had electricity in it, which was great. But the things were kind of makeshift and older. And the bus itself was not completely foundationally sturdy. It wasn't bulletproof. And so there were lizards and hornets and unfortunately, a rat. The rat became such a huge memory of this whole trip for me because one night I am staying at the place, of course, right? I'm staying there, I'm sleeping, everything's good and um, I had been, I believe, sleeping in my car because the bus wasn't prepared yet, which I had no problem with. I had foreseen that I was gonna sleep in my car um, on the trip, so he was like, "Hey, listen, the bus isn't totally cleaned out yet. Um, some stuff went on. We just—it's just not where it needs to be. But we'll prioritize it soon. But in the meantime, you know, you can sleep on the couch, whatever, whatever." I was like, no, it's cool, man. I'll sleep in my car. Like, I've got a whole—I've got a whole." deck going you know it's stacked i'm ready to go was like all right cool and one evening he's like hey listen um i'm gonna head out tonight i'm gonna go stay with my girlfriend at that time it was his girlfriend i'm gonna go stay with my girlfriend overnight there so you'll be good here right just on your own and i was like "Yo, oh, yeah no problem he's like okay cool you know there's some food here stuff you can have whatever hang out you know just i'll see you tomorrow i guess i was like all right dude sounds good and everything was good (laughs) we had cleaned up the bus at that point so I was like all right first night in the bus like I'm gonna be alone but um, you know I'll be in the bus now I've got more room I've got electricity in there lights um, I think you had a fan in there too it was just a better situation than sleeping in my trunk (laughs) and um, so I thought it would be but again The foundation, I guess, had holes in it, or maybe it was coming in through the engine, which had been gutted out, and it was finding its way through the front paneling and then into the car or the bus. But here's what happened I had been laying, hanging out, I think listening to a podcast, maybe falling asleep, and just feeling comfortable generally. Like it was cold out, I had a bunch of blankets on, I was ready to go to sleep, it was dark and although we did have electricity and lights it was it wasn't like a whole lit up environment (laughs) so my body's just totally ready to go to sleep all the stimulus was saying it's time to go to bed and I'm dozing off and then I feel this pressure on my foot and I'm half asleep at the point that I feel it so I'm thinking okay you know maybe just uncomfy like the blanket is too heavy on my foot and it's it's weighed on me to the point where now i notice it and so i kind of like rustled my feet again still half asleep just thinking that it's just like discomfort and i move my feet a little bit and like move to the side and then i feel it again and i was like what and i open my eyes and i notice that there's something on my foot so i flip i like kick and then i hear boom, hit the ground and then scurry off and i was like whoa what 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 freaking out i still half asleep, just unsure like what even was it i thought maybe it was a cat did i freak out the cat on an accident because he had two of them and then i'm thinking like no 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 that was not a cat there's something in here and i lean over the bed I'm looking by the bedside. There's nothing. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. And then I stand up. And I hear more scurrying. And I look up. I'm at one end of the the bus. Which is the backside. And I look down to the front of the bus. Where the steering wheel is. And in in a bus. There's that part. Like the railing. Where you grab onto and then you can open the window and then you have to pull it down. Well, below the window, there was this other railing, which I think was natural to the school bus. But it was like a handrail or something, maybe. Anyways, it was along the left side of the school bus as I was facing it from the back looking forward. And I have my phone in my hand and I turn the flashlight on my phone on and I point it up just down the hall of the bus and I see on that kind of um, railing a set of eyes and it was a rat bigger than I had ever seen before now this wasn't a subway rat this wasn't a New York City uh, metro rat so it wasn't some kind of mutant freak but it was big it was uncomfortably big and its belly was huge so I cursed at the rat. I was like, what the fuck, dude? Why are you here right now? Like, so gross that you were on me, first of all. You know, I get it. I'm warm. You know, you're checking things out. You probably smell me a little bit or something. But dude, what the fuck? So I'm talking to it and I'm cussing at am Like, dude, fuck you. Like, why are you here? And then it starts to take a couple steps toward me. <laughs> it's like looking at me in the light its eyes are like shining back at me the flashlights glare and it's just slowly taking steps toward me I'm like no <laughs> you know like no fuck you dude do not be here right now why are you even here and I'm, I'm tired it's cold and I'm alone because the guy's gone at his girlfriend's place so I'm like what the fuck do I even do and you know I just felt like there's no way I can go back to sleep impossible I'm not sleeping in here tonight. So I had to kind of make enough noise to get it to scurry off back into the inside, like the guts of the school bus disappear. And then I thought, okay, well, I've got to get my stuff and get out of here. So I grabbed most of my stuff, but left a couple of my bags. I just completely zipped them and like set them aside Because I'm like, dude, I just got to get out of here. It's cold. I don't want to spend time going back and forth. I couldn't carry it all because I had, at that day, migrated all of my stuff into the bus because I had like three bags and then a bag of clothes, a duffel bag. And so I just grabbed two of them and I'm like, you know what? I got to get out of here. I went to the main house and I wasn't fully um, tutored on how to use all of his electrics and all this stuff. So... I tried to turn on a light. I didn't know what was doing what. I didn't want to go in his room, you know, breach of privacy kind of thing. And I'm just like, man, what the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck. So I end up going back over to my car. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm sleeping in my car for the rest of the time here. And I did. He came back the next day and he was like, how was your sleep? How was the bus? And I was like, well, it was good until it wasn't. And I explained the situation to him. And he was like, oh, dude, I'm sorry, you know, fuck, I guess that happens. And I was telling him about the rat and he was like, yeah, um, it's probably a female rat and she was probably pregnant if her stomach was that big. I was like, oh, okay, well, jeez." And um, he was like, I guess I got to take care of it. But, you know, that's what the cats are here for, to try and mouse and keep those guys away. He's like, yeah, I understand, you know, that's just, that's nature, that's country. And I understood from when I had been in the Missouri homestead kind of deal. Um, there was one point I was sitting on the chair, a chair reading, and I looked over onto my shoulder just perchance, and I see there's a brown LaCruz just crawling on my shirt. <laughs> I dusted that thing off and said, All right, I'm done sitting here. <laughs> no more of that. And so, same thing, it's just like, that's life. That's life like that rat is real. They really exist in nature and they will come up to you, you know. But um the rest of the time there was pretty cool. It was nice. We went and helped a bunch of his friends many times going onto their land doing whatever. And there was what seemed to be a big like gift economy in that area at least. People would do things for each other as gifts and really doing it truly out of friendship and the other person would just want to extend their hand back and be like look well here I want to give you something and a lot of times it was fruit it was lush as you may expect Louisiana is pretty lush and so a lot of people have fruit and nut trees like tons of pecans everywhere a lot of persimmons um, I can't think of that citrus. Um anyways, yeah, people just have a lot of stuff going on or whatever, and so they're just like, oh here, take this. One time we were driving and my host, he was a term I can't remember, but he was um basically working with plants and trees. He knew them very well. I don't want to say he was a horticulturist, he was something else. But he could identify pretty much everything all the time, no matter where we were. Um, He would just be like, oh, yeah, this is that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at this leaf type. That means that. Anyways, we're driving and he's always on the lookout. He's always turning his head left to right as he's driving, looking at different things and for different things because he would do a lot of wild foraging. We uh, foraged a bunch of mushrooms. We foraged nuts We foraged um, coyote squash, or chayote, coyote squash, which is just a type of squash, and then we pickled them. And what I'm getting to here is at one point, we managed to get our hands on a bunch of persimmons. I didn't even know what persimmons were. I hadn't heard of the name, even until I was in Louisiana, which I'm so happy I spent time there. Like, it's just this whole... World that I didn't even know existed, and it was right next door. So, anyways, we're driving, and he sees this big persimmon tree in somebody's yard, and it's full of persimmons like they've not been picked at all. So, he's like, Oh, interesting. Okay, we got to check that out. But we had to go help his friend do something, and he said, On the way back, we're gonna stop here, and I'm gonna ask that guy if he's home or whoever answers the door if we can get some of their persimmons. So, that's exactly what happened we went back on the way there we parked went up to the door knocked on it and he was an old guy that answered And he said sir i noticed you have a beautiful persimmons tree and there's so many persimmons on it i was wondering if i could just maybe fill a basket of them with it fill a basket with it of them <laughs> And the guy's like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I'm older. I can't really get up to the tree anymore to pick them myself. My wife used to love persimmons. I'm, you know, kind of indifferent about them. I think they're nice, but there's just so many, like, there's no way I could even eat them all, even if I could pick them all myself. And so he's like, please come in. I would be happy to have you guys, you know, just visit and talk and you can have as many as you want. Take them all, Please. He's like, otherwise they just fall when they're ripe. And when they're ripe, they get really squishy. And so they just fall onto the ground and there's like this huge red mess just all around the base of the tree. And so we're like, all right, cool. We ended up filling, I think, three baskets full of persimmons. And then we just talked to the guy and he told us about himself. And he was a, not a pastor, whatever the Catholic... The head of a Catholic church is... I can't remember the name. And then he just told us about his life. (laughs) And we ended up doing something similar to that another time. We went down to the Gulf and fished with his friend just off the pier. And we just believed naturally. And that was my time in Scott, Louisiana. Now, the next place I went to was my last destination in Louisiana and I drove pretty much the rest of the way across the state towards Florida and stopped in a place called Lacombe, which is like an hour north of New Orleans, or New Orleans, whatever. I stayed with a man named Tom, and up to this point, I had not seen another work aware. I didn't even see another workwear here, but it was such a big part of my previous trip seeing other people like other foreigners who are in the u.s traveling and using this platform and we all live together and you know we shared culture and stories and had a good time i was so excited for that again this time around and i felt like oh i missed it on the first two you know maybe this third one's gonna have somebody and i believe he was supposed to have somebody And I was expecting there to be somebody up until like a couple days prior. He mentioned, hey, not going to happen. It's just going to be us. So I'm like, ah, okay. Now this whole trip is on the heels of me having lived in Denton for a year. And if you don't know any of that, the context of it, if you want to, you can listen to the My Story episode which I believe is number 11 on this podcast. And I talk about it at length, so I'll say with brevity here that my time in Denton was filled with rejection. I deeply wanted to create a relationship with any woman, <laughs> you know. Even friendship would have been fine at that point, but it was just relentless, unending Rejection, Over and over and over. And that's life. But I had gotten to a point in my seeking of relationships. And then in my own relationships that already existed. That I was being put on the back burner. That there was really no appreciation. um, Just a lot of being ignored and overlooked. And so that was a time in my life where I felt like nobody is on my team. It's just me. And if I don't make a point to treat myself well and to have that positive self talk, then there's nobody. There's nobody looking out for me. There's nobody trying to support me. Just a big feeling of it's me against the world. And the world is not really fighting me. They're just totally indifferent. Like nobody cares. (laughs) It was shitty. It was so shitty. And so I was excited to be on this trip because I got to meet a bunch of people who were into the things I was into. So many of the people I was running into didn't care. They didn't give a fuck about the things that I cared about. They didn't have the same interests. Maybe some of them did, but it wasn't voiced. It wasn't even uh, reciprocated. When I voiced those sort of things, I tried to meet people. It just did not work out. So I'm so excited to work with other work wares and to meet these people out there that I knew felt the same way I feel about, you know, lifestyle and all these things. And yet I was missing all of them. They just were not showing up. Couldn't find any of them who weren't my hosts? My hosts were cool people. But besides the guy who I had just been with and Scott, the bus guy, most of them were much older than me. And so was Tom. But... Tom ended up being the first person who I felt like in such a long time was on my team. In fact, in my writing here, I wrote that Tom was my first cheerleader. He was the first person I had come in contact with in like years who I got the sense that they actually wanted me to succeed. They admired me and they wanted me to continue doing good. And that just felt so great. (laughs) It felt so great. He was an older guy. Um, As of next month, in March, he's going to be 88 years old. So when I met him, he was 85, maybe 86. And um, he had his wits about him. He sure had spunk. He had fire. He really had his mind still. But his knees had been damaged from jumping out of planes so much. He was in the Air Force. And so he got exposed to a lot of the rough outcomes that come with being in the military. And a lot of what I did was just helping him clean up. But in very broad sense. So it wasn't like cleaning, like sweeping. It was just like... Hey, I've got all these things that are, you know, out of place. They're not where I want them to be. So I just need you to move this. I need you to clean this window. I need you to take up this wooden board and then put in a new one. I need you to, you know, go do this thing over here. And it was just like all over the place, kind of tending to little things. He ran or runs... Praise God, he's still alive. Hopefully, I get to see him for his 88th birthday next month. He runs a cultural heritage center, which is recognized by, I want to say, Discovery or National Geographic, but I think it's Discovery. And it's all about like Mesoamerican. When I showed up, he was like, Are you native? Are you Indian? And I was like, oh, man, you know, I don't know. Um, I've never gotten that before, but it's possible. My grandma is from Mexico. And he was like, oh, yeah, you look native. And it turned out my sister ended up getting, like, a DNA test maybe a year or so later, a year and a half later, and she found out that we are, in fact, 12% native. So good on him. He certainly knows his stuff. It was interesting because his whole house and the property – functioned as a sort of museum to that culture. And I'm not entirely certain why. Maybe he told me and I can't remember. But I think he was just fascinated by it. But here he was, a you 5'8", 5'9", blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy who just appreciated the culture and so built his house this way around it. And what I want to tell you for this trip which will finalize this episode, is what he told me about why he even lives there. Why he's doing what he's doing. He served his community a bunch. He had a bunch of placards and awards and recognitions by the local area and other mm, organizations just of the services that he had rendered them as a volunteer or supporter, whatever. And, um, you know, we got to talking, and he tells me the story of how it led up to that point. And what happened was this. He was a young man living in Los Angeles, and he was living a fast life. He said he didn't expect to live to 21. He was around a lot of fast-living people, people doing drugs and living lifestyles that were just... um, you know, perhaps the norm at that time in that area for that sector of people, people involved in show business like Hollywood, these other things. And, um, he said he found himself in a situation where he was basically out of it. Like he was in the gutters kind of literally, he said he woke up and he was just torn apart from all the drugs he had done. And, um, he kind of got nursed back to health by this guy who was like a sensei of sorts. And I can't remember too much about that part, but it led him to getting clean in all senses of the word. And he got a job working. I want to say at this architecture firm, but he was doing something more along design and not so much architecture. And he also had to enlist because at that time, was the Vietnam War so there was a draft and every male of age had to enlist by law but he's working this job with design and he's spearheading this project and one day he ends up at Disney World because for some reason whatever they were working on was going to be implemented in some sort of entertainment thing or some sort of theme park And so they were just at Disney World, like, doing something. But he comes into contact with Walt Disney. And this is totally true. He showed me a picture of him and Walt Disney together in Disney World. And he tells me that Walt, in talking to him at one point, after having shown him around the whole area, says, Listen, I understand that you're the leader of this project. And he had seen the results of it. And he said, I think this is amazing. I think this is a really great thing. And the fact that you're the leader of it, you know, you really came up with so much of it and drove it forward. I want to hire you to work for me at Disneyland or Disney World. I can't remember which word. I think it's Disneyland. <laughs> I want you to work for me at Disneyland. And he said, listen, Walt, I would love to do that. Truly, I would love to do that. It would mean... You know, more than everything, but I got drafted. I have to go to war. I have to go serve. And Walt said, okay, I understand. Totally understand. It's an obligation you cannot get out of. When you get back, there will be a job here waiting for you. And so Tom said, 100%, okay. Yes. When I'm back, I will come back to Los Angeles and I will work here for you, with you, at Disneyland. But then something crazy happened. He's in the Air Force, and at one point, they're flying over, I can't remember, the um, the East Agency? They're flying over some ocean. <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. And they get into the situation where their power goes out. And so they're convinced death has come upon them. Because they left off off of an aircraft carrier, which was in the middle of an ocean. And now they're in the sky with no power. All they have is fuel to run the plane. And when that goes out, they're shit out of luck. So they're convinced they're going to die because they don't know where they are anymore. They have a general idea, but they don't really know where they are. They cannot fly to Japan Because Japan will think they're an enemy because they have no way to communicate. They have no radio. And if they fly in at this time, there was like all this heightened tension. They're like, if we try to fly in, we're going to get shot. There's just no way we're going to survive. That was like their last ditch effort was to try and fly to Japan. We can't fly back to um, America. We're too far. We are too fucking far to try and fly to America. We do not have enough fuel. We will crash into the ocean and certainly die. We cannot go into Vietnam because that's our enemy. They'll kill us. And we can't go back to our aircraft carrier because that's basically a needle in a haystack. We're flying over the ocean, and here is a relatively small ship. There's no way we can find it. And the availability to find it would require so much gas. Like we would have to go back and forth scanning every little area. It would take so much time. We don't have enough fuel. We don't have the resources to do that. There's like no way we're going to find our aircraft carrier. So they're all convinced this is the end. That's it. They are basically done for. At some point, they're going to run out of fuel, and they're going to crash, or they're going to get shot by an enemy or a friendly who thinks that they're an enemy. So Tom goes to the back of the plane, and he starts to pray he says, God, thanks. Thanks for everything up to this point. I've had a pretty cool life. I've done more than most people have in my time. I've made a lot of dumb choices and I've been allowed to go on. Here I am. But uh, I guess it comes to an end at some point, And it seems like this is it. So I just want to say hi because I haven't talked to you that much. I just want to say I do appreciate what I have. But... If, by your grace, I live and I get out of this situation alive, if I live through this, I will leave California behind and I will move to Louisiana and just help people. And so he said, shortly after he finished praying, the power came back on. And he ran over to the radar. It did a full scan. It blipped. Onto where the aircraft carrier was, and he drew a circle around it on the page, or on the uh, on the radar. So he had a marking where it was, and then um, he started plotting a course on how to get there. And the power went back off. But because they knew where the ship was and they knew where they were, they had all the information that they needed. So he finished charting it out by hand, where they needed to go because now they knew where it was that they needed to go they flew home they flew back to the aircraft carrier with no power the rest of the trip just based off of that like two minute time span where the radar had blipped and shown them where their ship was so he said he came back after his time serving and moved to Louisiana because he had some sort of connection. I want to say it was family. Maybe it was to that area itself. Like the land was being given to him. Or it was like in... Um, there was something where he already knew he was going to go to Lacombe. And so he went there and he just started building. He built his entire entire house by hand, by himself. Maybe with the help of some friends sometimes. But he built it all up. And he just said you know, I have to do this because I was given a second chance. So now my life is devoted to other people. And I saw the fruit of that. I saw the recognition he had gotten from so many organizations and peoples who he had helped. And he helped me pretty immensely, especially in that time in my life. It felt like, you know, I had never felt this with any other host and I hadn't afterwards, It felt like he actually took an interest in who I was and what I was about and what I wanted to do. And he affirmed so much of what I was interested in and doing all these things. And he just supported me verbally and, um, you know, like emotionally was like, hey, look, you've got it. You've got what it takes. I think you're something. I think you can do it. I think you should do it. Let me know if there's any way I can help. And it was so refreshing because for basically the three years before that, I felt like there was zero of that. I felt like there was zero support, truly genuine support of somebody who didn't want something back from me besides seeing me succeed. So Tom, thank you very much. Um, He was a funny dude, funny, funny dude. He is a funny dude. <laughs> I talked to him the other day um yeah and that's an amazing thing too about the whole workaway deal it's like you can end up creating connections that go far beyond the week or two weeks you spend in an area on my way back home to texas from florida he was one of the people who i was able to stay with on my way back because we had a good connection and then in some years later my cousin ended up getting married Somewhat near where he lived in um, Covington, Louisiana, just outside of Covington, and so I called him up again, and I was like, "Hey, dude, I gotta go to Covington for a wedding. Do you mind if I stay with you overnight afterwards?" He's like, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> so yeah, workaways is just—it can be a very, very special thing. It's almost as if—and I got this sensation so many times on both trips. It's as if you're being nudged forward the whole time. By taking a risk and going for it, you don't need a safety net. You don't need to bring your own safety net because the universe or whatever pins one up for you. And there's no way you can vault to it. I ended up getting so much more than I anticipated. And I will get into discussing that in the next story time episode so until then peace